My name is Yokao Mutonga and I am the research and inventory manager at Bookbank Trust. So far, um, the most interesting object that I have found in the library has been these haunting portraits of the King's African Riflesmen. And we've got four of them. This guy's name is Private Kiblangat Kimdunya. Do you reckon that's a misspell? Kip, yeah, definitely. Kiblangat. So that would be Kiblangat. Yeah. One is quite large and then you've got three others that are the same size and the thing that stands out to me about them is that for the past two years we tried to find a little bit more information about these soldiers. Sergeant Matthias? Oh, Sergeant Matthias was not given a second name sadly. Peter Joseph, also the same division as the others and the same year. And couldn't find the, the war artist anywhere online um, or even their names and then by some form of serendipity a few weeks ago when we were filming we took down the paintings and found that each painting had the full name of the soldier at the back and the region where they came from so these four paintings one of the soldiers is from Yasaland uh, which would be Malawi because it's in Blantyre and then another soldier is Kenyan from Kiricho there's one from Tabora in Tanzania and another one from Uganda Painted by Captain L.G. Caswell official war artist presented by Major General W.A. Dimoline on behalf of the HEA Division June 1946 Soldier King's African Rifle. King's African Rifle. When Bookbank took on these libraries, we knew that we would be guardians of a significant part of Kenya's history, and these portraits were part of that. We've always known about the King's African Rifles. We knew they fought for the British and the Allied forces in not one, but two world wars, and we spoke a bit about them in episode two, so do go back and have a listen if you haven't already. But when I walk past these portraits, there's something in their faces that tags at me. So today, we're going to learn about the King's African Rifles. You know, I'm actually really excited about this because like you, I know a little bit about them, but it wasn't really covered in my GHC classes. <laughs> GHC? <laughs> what a throwback. That means geography, history, and civics for those who might not know. Now you know. Now you know. Okay, but before we begin, I'm Angela Washuka. And I am Anjiro Koinange. And this episode is called... Oh yeah, Washuka, what's this episode called? This one is yours. It is a palace full of memories. Ooh, I like that. So, today we're talking about some of the things that we found in the library and some treasures from Kenya's past. And we're going to start with these portraits, these paintings that show men about to embark on a journey to fight in the Second World War. Before we get on with the history and what these men went through, let's talk about who exactly the King's African Rifles were. So there were multi-battalion, uh, colonial regiments of the British Army. The officers were British and the soldiers, what they called the rank and file, were African. The regiment was founded in 1902. So the men in the paintings, those were from decades after the formation of the regiment. You know how much I notice grandma, Shiro? <laughs> yes, yes, I do. And I can totally see where you're going with this. It must drive you crazy the way it's written. King apostrophe S African rifles. 
like in the possessive? Yes, they belong to him. When the King's African Rifles were founded, this is what the uniform looked like. You ready? I know it's going to be bad, otherwise you wouldn't show it to me. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and describe it for our listeners? Okay, so it's a picture of a man wearing a red cylindrical hat with a tassel on it. I think it's called a fez. And I've seen it a lot in like that old colonial imagery that you can still find in old school hotels in some parts of rural Kenya. He's wearing this um, safari style suit that's khaki in color with this badges on his breast pocket um, with his blue knee-high socks and what I think are sandals. And he's carrying a sword. Yeah, the King's African Rifles were formed from different colonial forces in what was then called British East Africa. The men of the rifles, they call them Askaris, which is the Kiswahili word for soldiers. They were tasked with safeguarding the British invaders in their colonies. When the First World War broke out in 1914, the regiment was pretty small. The British were still nervous about arming so many of the people they had colonized by force. But... As the war raged on, the British expanded the regiment. And in Kenya, where colonialism had shut down many avenues for young men to make a life for themselves, they were able to recruit heavily. It's that classic colonial playbook. Create conditions where people have no real options and then use that to your advantage. Absolutely. Yes, it is. There were also many Kenyans who had no other option. They were forced to fight rather than be killed or go to prison. By 1918, that's the end of the war, there were 22 battalions and just over 30,000 men in the regiment, plus over 400,000 men in the carrier corps. Those were men tasked with porter duties and supplying the soldiers with food, water and other essentials. And as a side note, because I know we've talked a lot about how history informs our Nairobi today, that's where the name of the carrier corps neighborhood comes from. So carrier corps is Karyoko. Hmm. So by the end of World War One, they have a pretty big regiment, right? Yes, yes. And they had seen fighting. The King's African Rifles fought in the East Africa campaign until November 11th, 1918, which was when Germany surrendered in Europe. But actually, in East Africa, they kept fighting for longer than that. Communication was obviously not passed on, and it took around two weeks for the Germans to get the memo that the war was over and they had lost, they'd continued fighting and taking casualties on both sides. Oof, that really brings out just how pointless this all was for our people. Especially if you had no stake in what was being fought for in Europe. It's estimated that around one million East Africans died in the war from fighting, yes, but also from starvation and disease and hauling supplies for the army and just trying to survive as the British diverted resources and food to the war effort. That is a massive amount. Huge. So after the war, the regiment was mostly disbanded. None of the men who fought and died for Britain and their allies were given any sort of help to reintegrate back into civilian life. Yeah, I mean, nowadays we know so much more about PTSD and other forms of mental trauma that are still rather stigmatized. But back then there must have been nothing, like no help available. 
I remember these veterans who were working for my father when they came from the war. Uh, they either refused or didn't want to go back to their homes. They would be telling us all kinds of stories from the war, how they would be running when the bullets were flying, as they used to tell us, like the cannons would explode right by them. They did not know where they were. Sometimes they would be you know, absent-minded. And we thought they were like crazy, but that's because of the war. We didn't even know that that's what that affected them. We didn't know what that cost it. We didn't know that from hearing uh, shots or those bombs from the cannons, you know, your brain would be affected. We just used to think, ah, you know, they went to the war, they saw maybe too much, or that's why they don't think straight. After they came back, they never married. They had no children, but they stayed there until they died. And then Musa took them to where they came from. That's where they were buried. That's John Oniego, who says this was pretty common at the time. This phenomenon happened all over the world. They called it shell shock back then. But you have to imagine that here, where soldiers weren't even fighting for their own country, that the shock must have been insurmountable for many of them. And so in the years between the world wars, the fighting force went back to around 2,000 men, used like a quasi-police force by the colonizers. Let me guess, until they needed them to fight in World War II, right? You guessed it. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. Once again, the British recruited, cajoled, and forced Kenyan men into service to fight their war. Hang on, was this the war where they fought in Burma? Yes, the one that Tekla Muticia told us about in episode two. So please go back and have a listen if you haven't. While the King's African Rifles fought in many battles in World War II, many of them here in Kenya, it's the Burma battles that we often hear about. The soldiers were sent in 1944 to fight the Japanese. I think we hear about it because it was so brutal, so far away and so pointless for men from Kisumu or Kisi or Nakuru. When you break it down, it's, it's kind of absurd. The fact that Britain would enlist you as a Kenyan sent to Burma to defend India against the Japanese. Jack Losh is a British investigative journalist. A few years ago, he was in Ethiopia and started chatting with a man in the city of Harar. He invited us in. We ended up staying for dinner. That he, he left the room and came back with a bunch of documents. And he said, my dad was a soldier uh, fighting for the British Empire. Now, shamefully, I had no idea that African soldiers had fought for Britain during World War II or indeed World War One. It just—it was just something that we were never taught about at school. I mean, it was all the Tudors and the Nazis, but that colonial aspect of our wartime history had kind of been brushed over. Um, our host went on to say that his father was actually a Somali Kenyan. He had enlisted in the King's African Rifles, one of the Imperial regiments at the outbreak of war, uh, and ultimately ended up being sent off to Burma. He, he fought there in, in desperate conditions, uh, tropical disease, 
brutal jungle guerrilla warfare and eventually came back at the end of the war, uh, was dumped somewhere in Somalia and eventually made his way into the Somali region of Ethiopia and started a new life there. It was what his host, Amir, said next that sent Jack down a rabbit hole of history and old colonial documents. Amir's father, after fighting in desperate conditions on the other side of the world for an empire that had colonized his own country, came back with very little prospects. Amir said his father did not receive adequate payment for putting his life on the line. Jack teamed up with an American historian called Timothy Persons. And uh, between us, we began digging out all these crucial historical documents and testimonies uh, that highlighted this. A lot of this work had been done before, but it had never actually entered the mainstream. It was in you know quite niche uh, historical works. The, the centerpiece of my investigation revolved around this document uh, to do with something called war gratuities. Now, a war gratuity was basically a bonus. It was an end-of-war bonus that every soldier, conscript or regular, would get at the end of his service. Um, now, usually it was calibrated to two things, your rank and how long you'd served. And if your rank was higher and the amount of time that you'd served was higher, you'd get a higher pay, right? That makes sense. The twist was, with this document, it outlined the end-of-war bonus for Britain's colonial soldiers. And what it showed was that this payment was calibrated not only to length of service, not only to rank, but also to ethnicity. So what you had was European personnel were being paid X amounts. Uh, in the middle were Asian personnel who were being paid uh, kind of a flat rate of seven shillings fifty, which roughly equated to half in some cases or, or less uh, of what Europeans were getting. And then at the bottom, uh, it was for African, what they called African and Somali ranks, uh, which roughly equated to a third of what Europeans were getting. Um, the, the final kick in the teeth from this is actually there was a rank even lower than this, and it was African personnel who served in the uh, Labour Corps um, who would get paid even less. The, the cruel twist of that is, is that labourers would often find themselves right on the front line, in the firing line, facing the same level of, of risk as combatants, and yet we were going to be getting paid an end-of-war end of bonus that was even less. I don't know if I'm angry or heartbroken. If you want to look at this document, um, there's a copy of it on our learning resources, so check that out on our website. The portraits, which you can see um, in our learning resources on our website, were just one of the things we found in the library. This building is truly a palace full of so many memories. Some of them are very painful to see. All of them are part of our history. Here are some of the wonderful interns we've been working with to digitize these collections. They are talking about what they're finding in the library and what that has meant to them. 
Hello, my name is Matafia Travis Nyambura. I have been privileged to work for BookBank since September 2019 as a research and tours intern. And uh, over my period working there at the libraries, I've been privileged to find a history of the Akikuyu by Geoffrey Morioki between 1500 and 1900, which for me was a really, really interesting find because it helped seal um, and reconstruct some of the knowledge gaps within um, the Kikuyu way of life of which I'm a part of and uh, for me supplementing this knowledge with other forms of, of Kikuyu literature that I have been reading like um, Facing Mount Kenya by Jomo Kenyatta, um, a history of the Kikuyu before the southern Kikuyu before 1903 is really really interesting for me so that has been the highlight of my find. Thank you. My name is Marion Anvango and I have been with BookBank since 2019 as a lead inventory intern. One of the findings from the library that I was really fascinated by and thought was quite a gem is a book that has a real zebra skin cover. It is a personal diary by a white man in the pre-colonial times detailing his experiences in Kenya. It even contains photographs of him and the community during the visit. The reason why I think this is a treasure find is because it's a first-hand raw account of a white person that gives us a picture of the lives of Africans in the pre-colonial times. And in a bid to decolonize our minds, helps us judge for ourselves whether all the pre-colonial texts we have read before that were from the perspectives of a white person in comparison to those by African authors really did justice to our African history. Thank you. This episode was produced by me, Angela Washuka, with Wanjiro Kranange and May Francis. Sokao Mutonga is our lead researcher and resident queen, as always, of fact-checking. To donate or support our work, please visit bookbank.org. As always, you can find learning resources to go along with this episode at bookbank.org forward slash podcast. We also give library tours. Visit our website for details. This podcast is supported by the British Council. Special thanks to John Oniego and Jack Losh, and many thanks to our stellar research interns who are currently digitizing a total of 20,000 archives at the Macmillan Memorial Library. Thank you.